I'm your host, Alex Maersperger, and in season three of the Health Pulse podcast, we celebrate those changing healthcare and life sciences for the better. Previously, you've met Antonio de Castro as a guest, and in our continued globalization, we're so excited for this new phase where we get to have him as a special guest host for a few episodes focused on Asia Pacific. And now I get to pass the mic over to Antonio. Thank you for passing the mic, Alex. Hello, everyone. My name is Antonio De Castro. I will be your host in today's episode of the Health Pulse podcast. I'm here to give a voice to healthcare and life science experts here in Asia. Access and sharing of health data has always been a sensitive topic, whether it's electronic medical records, clinical research data, or genetic data. But creating secure platforms for exchange is a must if we want to move towards precision medicine. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Nino De Silva from BC Platforms. Nino is the Deputy Managing Director of BC Platforms, and he is based here in Singapore. He is an international leader in medical informatics and business strategy. Nino, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Thank you, Antonio. It's a great pleasure to be here. Okay, let's talk about BC Platforms. Can you give us an introduction about your company? Absolutely. So uh, BC Platform spun out of the MIT Whitehead, the Eric Landers Group, in the late 90s. Uh, was a quite successful academic project that endeavored to merge genuine phenodata in one data construct, enabling advanced analytics on the combined data. Uh, we still do it from that basis that combining different data types in one environment in order to uh, create possibilities for uh, federated or centralized analytics, utilizing advanced analytical tools such as the SAS portfolio on top of it. Um, and uh, we do that for life science companies, discovery, clinical research, and for healthcare entities, uh, precision medicine, and uh, production of large-scale biobanks and collections. Excellent. A lot of our listeners are coming from clinical research space. Can you walk us through on how a company like BC Platforms help pharmaceutical companies in their drug development journey? Well, still a large part of the development and discovery work for pharmaceutical companies is based on uh, an angle towards uh, phenotypic data, so longitudinal clinical and medical data. Uh, but uh, since quite a lot of years, there's a growing uh, field within genetics, using either genetics for discovery or combining genetics and phenotypics for uh, discovery work. Uh, this goes on, of course, all the way up to the clinical research side of the uh, R&D and uh, development spectra for pharmaceutical companies, where we see an increasing need for having the uh, genetic data as one of the components of the data set that you use. This goes from everything from establishing uh, synthetic control arms, to the really pure um, discovery work where you look at large cohorts in order to find patterns or markers that would indicate susceptibility or protection against certain disease or activity in relation to uh, certain drug molecules that you want to uh, explore. I want to pick up on a specific subject there, synthetic control arms or external control arms. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about them, together with the boom on real-world evidence. How are synthetic control arms being used in clinical research? Well, I'll give my view on this, and I want to make sure that uh, it's understood that my expertise is in clinical informatics more than in 
in the side of um, uh, application of synthetic control, synthetic control arms or external control arms. But on a high level, uh, I think if I'm not misremembering, in 2017 there was uh, issued a possibility to um, submit synthetic control arms as part of an approval for FDA in the US. And that kind of led the way to looking at how synthetic control arms could be deployed in, uh, in this purpose and for also for other purposes. And a large part of the rest of the world has followed on that track. What it really means is a possibility to avoid uh, recruiting for clinical trials as an example for when you want to deploy a certain drug uh, which is approved uh, and submitted and approved in the US as an example in a European country or basically anywhere in the world where there is a pro uh, process for such submission and approvals. Uh, in reality, as you know, clinical trials uh, has many difficult levels. One of them is the fact that in some cases there might be even questionable ethics around them for the very reason that uh, when you recruit these patients, some of these patients, uh, even though very ill and in need of the drug, would be uh, supposedly on placebo, just giving a, a, a higher like coarse-grained example. And that is not the best motivator for participation. And you could also, of course, ask if it's the right way. But unfortunately, there are no other ways, and, and we have to find uh, alternatives that still fulfills the, the demands and the necessity for uh, validation and accuracy. So a synthetic controller means that instead of uh, recruiting for such a clinical trial, you can, based on the original submission, uh, find uh, an identical data set which matches the patients from the original clinical trial and then use that new data set and the original clinical data set as a reference to validate and approve the drug, for example, for a new market that has a different haplotype. So, for example, a drug uh, approved in the US might not apply to be approved in Germany without validating that it will have the same efficacy um, as it had in the original population. Thanks for explaining some of the benefits of synthetic control arms. Clearly, it lightens the burden on recruitment. But does this mean that now I have a perfect study population, well-represented, diverse, and perfectly stratified? It's, it's possible to get a better certification. It's definitely, because it's so much cheaper than uh, actually recruiting for a clinical trial, you can afford, for example, to look for larger data sets. You can create a value out of the very fact that there is economical uh, advantages uh, as well as others. But there are also challenges. Mind well that one of the challenges is that you need to find proper matches. And if it's a rare disease, uh, this might involve engaging multiple uh, data custodians in order to run the cohort needed because the number has to match uh, the needs of the project. And, and as such, uh, there is also, of course, the regulatory factors such as GDPR and GDPR plus in countries like Israel and some of the Asian countries. Um, so I have to say that it all sounds like a dream when you talk about synthetic control arm. But um, we have worked quite extensively to find solutions that made us able to navigate uh, the regulatory world in a compliant and approved way and also to combine cohorts that are separate without moving the data necessarily. Uh, and in some kinds by moving the data into an environment which can be approved in a GDPR uh, uh, Schrems context. Uh, so everything looks perfect and you are right. It could be what you are saying and uh, implying here. Uh, 
But to get there, there are many components that you can't simply solve by just starting a project. Uh, and I want to stress that this has to be done in a very accurate and professional way. You have to be able to engage multiple data partners from time to time. We do it regularly for the synthetic control arms. And then you have to harmonize between these in order to achieve the, the goals and in order to be able to stratify in the way that you exemplified. Now let's talk about sharing of health data. Can you tell us about BC Platform's expertise in building trusted research environments? Well, definitely. Uh, if you don't mind, I would like to touch two types of platforms, TRE, which is a trusted research environment, and TCE, which is a trusted collaboration environment. They are by nature similar, but have very different perspective. Uh, I'll just, the trusted research environment is um, in, in, in simplified uh, context, it's a way for a data custodian to enable researchers within the country and potentially outside the country to access their data for specific research projects in a safe way without copying or moving the data. So it's protecting, the intent is to enable research, highly dynamic research with analytics, but without moving or, quote, selling the citizens' data. Rather, to enable the citizens' data to build knowledge, therapeutic uh, treatments, drugs, uh, and advances in precision and general medicine. Population medicine is a good example. So TREs uh, has come the last couple of years, and we have worked in several such projects. And they are still in a maturing process, but there are uh, definitely ways of doing it that works well and uh, is in use today, both from us and, and other entities. When it comes to TCEs, uh, that's something that we have started developing with uh, a few of our pharmaceutical uh, customers. Uh, and TCEs is a trusted collaboration environment. So where a TRE aims to take one data custodian's data into the use of many researchers, a TCE aims to bring the possibility for one life science company, or several, to access multiple custodians in the same way, meaning regulatory approved, without necessarily copying data, giving full dynamic access to analytics, bridging over multiple cohorts with different populations or with the same population, depending on if it's a global or local project or a regional project. The TCE holds the promise of solving a lot of the challenges that you have in amassing enough data without necessarily having to colonize it. So we are quite opposed to the general model of data copy if it can be avoided. There are cases where you can't, but as much as possible to use true federation, to be able to use analytical tools on top of such platforms of true federation is really that's something we believe strongly in for the future. I have a follow-up question here regarding data protection and data quality. For data protection, could you please share with us uh, the importance of granting data access in a secure manner and how BC Platforms is at the forefront of data security? So first of all, I want to say that I am not a regulatory expert, uh, and that's important to, to underline, but I can give you a general view of this. So the basic principles is, of course, that whether you are under GDPR or not, uh, we inherently believe that 
uh, it is crucial, it's fundamental to protect the privacy of the data, the anonymity uh, of the subjects that are participating in the data collections or in the healthcare uh, as patients. It is, of course, as fundamental that they are given the right to participate or not, so consent. And then on top of that, each country has, or many countries have, either common laws like GDPR, which might still be interpreted a bit different between the GDPR countries, and uh, even both more and or less advanced regulatory um, protocols that needs to be followed and, and adhered to. As an example, we are working in Israel that has uh, one of the most stringent regulatory framework for uh, utilizing patients' data. Uh, we, we are working with um, actually... Uh, the healthcare entity that handles half of the population of Israel today. And we are working there uh, with the, our system to build a satisfactory regulatory compliant environment for analytics of their data without moving it out of Israel, actually without moving it out of the firewalls of this healthcare entity. And I think the proof points really that you can do that is the validations that has been done on the system in these environments. And remember, we can't build a system for every country. We have to build one system that fits the whole world. That means that we constantly are monitoring the changes. We are constantly making sure that we are compliant. And I will tell you that this is one of the major challenges, because if you do not do this, you can't provide the environment that is demanded, and you can't either manage um, the needs that are there, not only for the um, citizens and patients that are participating, which is primary, but also for the needs of the researchers that need to access this data. Both needs to be kept happy, or else this will not work. With regards to data quality, uh, you can have data coming from multiple geographies with diversity in their practices. How is the variation in data quality assessed and treated? Well, if we talk about TCEs, and, uh, and then a very good example of a large-scale TCE is the bcrquest.com, our global data partner network with uh, 33 million patient lives, uh, whereof 5 million are uh, normalized and harmonized from five continents and, and more than 30 data partners around the world. Uh, it's a, a perfect example. When we come to a, a potential data custodian uh, that will wants or are interested in becoming a data partner in our network, they all participate on their own conditions, on their own rules with the data they have. And what we do is we help them with the heavy lifting in curating, normalizing, making that data uh, harmonized with the other cohorts around the world so that they can be properly compared. And part of that is, of course, the quality validation. And the truth is this, that even the best data custodians on the planet today will have smaller or larger problems. Um, you will find that some data partners um, in some cases might not even have uh, electronic data formats when we start. And then part of that heavy lifting is to help them to get past that. Uh, and in some cases, they have a very well-structured and very high-quality data, but they might still have quirks and things that needs to be corrected. So in the role, it's not only about the data quality inherently that they have, it's also about the work to harmonize and understand how to harmonize this data so it becomes comparable. Because you can imagine that attrition, meaning when you combine a data set, 
the number of subjects in the end that can be used for the specific research project, attrition is always there. The matter is how high it is. And by using the methodology that we do, we are OMOP Eden certified and works with OMOP and multiple other data models. The only way to do this is to do it over and over again, develop tools and automation and controls in order to have the lowest possible attrition. But still, there will be attrition in any research case as you come to the end point of creating the collection. And I think that is inevitable at this present point. It's just a matter of how good you are at doing that and how well you can cooperate with your data custodians and partners. And I find that I'm very proud to say we are quite successful in that work, but we will still get better as we go forward, I'm sure. Very insightful. Nino, we are both here in Singapore and both enjoy Asia very much. Can you tell me a little bit about why it is important for an organization like yours to be present and to grow here in Asia? Mm. Well, well, to start with, Asia is large and uh, the countries have substantially different cultures. But let's start with why we are here. I think that is a good start. Um, well, we see that uh, with the U.S. being a leader in the genomics field and uh, Europe with some specific countries uh, being uh, uh, about in the same position and having a very good growth trajectory, we identified uh, several years ago when we decided to put our uh, new office and business um, organization as well as R&D organization now in Singapore that uh, Asia has the potential of leapfrogging uh, has the energy and the need to do that. And we determined that we believe in that the trajectory in Asia will be uh, sharper than in Europe and US, although they start from a, um, like a lower baseline, so to speak. And in some countries like Singapore, there is a definite skill, knowledge, and um, ambition to be leaders. And I think Singapore is an excellent example with the uh, genomic, uh, the National Precision Medicine Program, the SJ100K that they are running now. And we see other countries around that are following this example or building their own examples. Uh, we have been quite focused on Singapore, uh, Japan, <coughs> and South Korea. And I think um, it is easy to see in evidence that these countries are providing not only the market, which would be a reason for any company to come here, but they are providing skill sets and ideas and a different perspective that we can benefit from and that we can also help and support locally. And then that knowledge, those ideas, those innovations can also be taken to the rest of the world, Europe and US. And that is a fascinating prospect that we see uh, clearly developing. Just right uh, a few weeks ago, we moved our CTO to Singapore to build our second R&D office globally in Singapore, uh, where we hope to have uh, a full set of uh, senior R&D um, individuals and junior ones to learn and teach. Um, by end of this year, beginning of next year, we hope to be a 10-man team there. And that's a good start, but it's not the end. So there are many reasons to be here. I want to state also finally that one reason is, is purely out of interest and supporting the science community. There is a lot of data custodians and there's a lot of research done on white Caucasian, if you pardon my phrasing, but that's the fact. And there is very little that is done on Asian haplotypes. 
Um, and much too little, because if you look at the number of population in Asia compared to the rest of the world, there should be a higher focus. And we believe strongly to be part of supporting that work. It will also benefit the whole world's population because we all come from the same route. So discovery is to be made here, we believe, and we want to be part of that. Nino, it has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. We like to end the Health Pulse episodes with optimism. So I would like to ask you, with all that's going on in the world and the difficult years we've had with the pandemic, what is it that you feel positive about the future? Well, first of all, I've always believed in humanity, and I still do. And secondly, I'd say that what we have seen the last few years in terms of initiatives and engagement to create cross-border collaborations, to share data and work in, in true federation models, to look at disease from multi-haplotypic perspective uh, over country borders, it's just increasing. And to me, it's a significant sign that people recognize and are willing to compromise and find a way to do this. And I would say that uh, that's a very positive thing. Thank you, Nino, for teaching us many things today. To our viewers and listeners, thank you for spending time with us today. We can't wait to share more healthcare and life science content with everyone. We welcome you to the conversation, of course. Please reach out to us in the comment section below or email us at thehealthpulsepodcast at sas.com. Thank you. Thank you.